0: Hi my name is Martin Purnell and welcome to Off Grid Christianity, a weekly podcast for those who go or don't go to church and for those that are disillusioned. This podcast series is to encourage via conversation and not necessarily change your mind prior to listening. You can contact us as well by email ogc at accessradio.biz, check out our Facebook page Off Grid Christianity and we now have our own website offgridchristianity.co.uk. So, please sit back and enjoy today's guest, who is a doctoral researcher at the Royal Holloway University of London. She specialises in nationhood and religious conflict. If you want to know more about church and state relations plus diplomacy between England and Central Europe and the Ottoman Empire, then our guest is a person to call. But how did a girl from the outskirts of New York City end up in the UK? How can reading medieval theology convert our guests from atheism? What do we know about the Crusades? What would it have been like to be a Christian in those times? gives me great pleasure to hear the answers from today's guest, Charlotte Gauthier. Charlotte, thank you so much for spending time, so much to ask you in so little time. But before we do that, five important questions. But first of all, very quickly, where are we speaking to you today from, please?
1: Uh, I um, am sitting in uh, beautiful, sunny, for once, London.
0: Central London?
1: Yes, indeed.
0: Okay, then, fingers on the buzzers, no conferring. Question number one. If you could invite anybody from history, this is going to be interesting, isn't it? For an evening meal, alive or dead, so that you could ask some questions. Charlotte, who would it be?
1: Cardinal Wolsey, I think. Oh! Um, not, yes, not just because he's, he's integral to my research, but I have to say, I have a soft spot in my heart for Cardinal Wolsey, despite the fact that he began the dissolution of the monasteries, mostly by sort of dissolving smaller houses in order to hoard up money. Um, to make his very own Oxford College. But he was a, a man of sort of great and very wide learning, um, not only sort of in, in politics and things mm-hmm. like that, but also in the, the arts and humanities of the time. And I think we would have a great conversation about 16th century politics and then, you know, maybe break out into some lute music or something.
0: Yeah, ask him to do a, a lute guitar solo. I can't say lute guitar solo, It'd be a lute solo, wouldn't it? uh, That'd be great. Of course, he then went on to make loads of socks as well. That's a sort of an English joke. Yes. But yeah, thank you. Now, it would be interesting to know what you thought about Henry as well.
1: Oh, yes, entirely. I mean, when when you work for that kind of absolute sociopath, I mean, you have to to be... You have to be a bit careful. I'm hoping that sort of 500 years on, he might be persuaded to uh, spill the beans.
0: Yes. Well, when you do speak to her, ask him about his thoughts on Lady Jane Grey, because I'm just reading a biography of her at the moment. So mm. perhaps he could spill the beans on that one as well. There we go. I wonder what he would say, do you think?
1: Mm. I'm not sure. I mean, the, the whole point of why Henry VIII did what he did is that the last time that a woman had inherited the English throne was Matilda and the time that she and her cousin Stephen were sort of going back and forth and arguing and fighting over the throne was called the anarchy for good reason. Mm. So there was very good reason why Henry VIII and why I suspect Cardinal Wolsey as well didn't want a woman to inherit is we don't want to go through that again.
0: Yeah. And Matilda's right, 1100s or something like that, wasn't it? Indeed. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. While she was waltzing around. No, I didn't say that. Question (laughs) two. Who is your favourite biblical character or favourite biblical story or favourite parable, please, Charlotte?
1: Okay, so probably Matthew 14, 22 to 33. So the the time when Jesus is, is walking on water, he approaches the disciples who are in the boat. They're freaked out. He says, well, don't be afraid, it's me. Peter turns around on him and says, Lord, if it's you, and you tell me to walk on the water and come to you, then I will be able to do it. And Jesus says, all right, come. Peter takes a step out of the boat. Peter, he's the second person in the Bible to walk on water. Yeah. There's two of them. He takes a couple steps. Then he looks around at the winds and the waves. He says, oh, crap. And he begins to to sink. And of course, he you know calls to, to Jesus who fishes him out.
0: I did not know that's what he said. That's obviously an original Greek translation, isn't it?
1: Exactly. Oh, crap. It's definitely in the Greek. Definitely in the Greek. If there is a metaphor for, at least, I'm, I'm not sure about anybody else's lived experience of the Christian faith, but if there is a metaphor for the my lived experience of the Christian faith, it's that.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Do you know what? You could just imagine Jesus just rolling his eyes going, oh, here we go.
1: Yeah. I I always imagine Jesus sort of, you know, chuckling a little bit as as he says uh to Peter, you know, Oh oh ye have little faith, wherefore yes. did you doubt?
0: Yeah, no, exactly. And people forget that actually Peter had the guts whereas the eleven others in the boat didn't. Exactly. Might have been a lot of heckling before around, go Peter, go for it, go for it. But we're not doing it. <laughs> go do it. And taking bets. bet it doesn't last more than one step.
1: There we go. I bet I bet James and John were sort of, you know, doing odds, you know?
0: <laughs> and the question is, what would we have done? Had we been one of those people in the boat?
1: Yeah, quite.
0: Yeah, I couldn't have walked on the
1: water. Don't think I would have been Peter, to be quite honest. He
0: gets bad press for that, but he shouldn't do. No, he shouldn't. Great answer. Thank you. Question three. Uh, yeah, I'll tell you what, I'm going to rephrase it. Question three, if you were Prime Minister for the day in the UK, or because you're from New York, I let you be President of the day of the USA, so you've got a choice on that one first, uh, and then we made your choice up, and you could change any law or impose new law, what would it be, please, Charlotte?
1: Right, the UK's home, so make me Prime Minister. Okay. I would replace the Higher Education Act 2017. Ooh. There has been no piece of legislation that has had a worse impact on the state of higher education in this country than that act. It has essentially, it's hold the university sector below the waterline and it needs to go.
0: If I was working for the BBC, I say, well, we actually reached out to <laughs> such and such <laughs> and here's their response, but thank you. Yeah, quite. If you become prime minister, we'll see if you can get it through the the legislation that'd be interesting.
1: It, it's never going to happen, unfortunately.
0: <laughs> but you're entitled to do it. Question four: Outside of family events, what has been your most enjoyable day out, please?
1: I mean, it's it's hard to sort of to pinpoint one. The the good thing about having sort of you know fairly uh, low threshold for enjoying oneself is that one enjoys oneself frequently. Yeah, yeah. So you know, there's, there's been any number of days on you know which I've I've done a bit of work in the library in the morning, reading through a medieval manuscript then gone to even song and out to dinner with friends. And that's pretty near the ideal.
0: Wow. Well, leaving out the research bit, <laughs> <I could> maybe <laughs> cope with the occasional even song, but definitely evening out meal. There we definitely go. do that. Question five. What has been your most embarrassing moment to date, please, Charlotte?
1: I had a really difficult time thinking of one of these, actually. you know, It's not that I don't get embarrassed. I get yeah, embarrassed yeah. very frequently. But I have the the happy ability to forget about such things um, as, as soon as they are passed, yeah, for yeah, which yeah. I thank the Almighty.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I get that. Thank you. Thank you for those five answers. Now we come to the other bit, the second part, and uh, talk about yourself. And let's start, first of all, Charlotte, as people can tell, you haven't got an English accent. I think I alluded at the beginning that you're from New York. So what is a New Yorker doing in the UK, please?
1: Well, I first came to the UK just on holiday when I was eight or nine years old. And this has always felt like home. So I spent the next sort of 25 years of my life trying to get back to the UK. And fortunately, finally, um, I now have indefinite leave to remain. So they can't kick me out. Although don't tell the foreign secretary because they might try. You never know. After you know all of this about the uh, the higher education, yeah, I, act, I might be for the chop. Oh yeah. But in any case, a lot of people have asked me, well, what does feels like home mean, and why the the mm. UK is opposed to the US? And that's actually a very difficult question to to answer. You know, why does anywhere sort of feel like home? I suppose you could point to a number of different things. You know, the sort of the the lifestyle, or you know, the 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 way that the people are, and there's there's some uh, bit of all of that. But I never particularly uh, felt like an American, whatever that is. So I'm, I'm glad to finally be home, as it were. Well,
0: that's a lovely answer. Looking, as I can see on the camera, obviously, we just do the podcast for audio, but I see loads and loads of books behind you. So let's talk about how you got involved then with reading books on theology and, more importantly, medieval era.
1: Sure. I mean, that's only about half the books. The other ones are to, to either side of me. I never wanted to be anything but an academic, uh, but it's been a sort of long and and winding road to get there. It's been a long and winding road to get everywhere, to be quite honest with you. I went to university for undergraduate, and I did uh, medieval history. I had to drop out because, of course, university in the U.S. is fabulously expensive. So the place that I was going is about $70,000 a year. What? And degrees in the U.S. take four years. So it's a quarter of a million, more than a quarter of a million dollars I would have spent had I continued in education. Um, So I had to drop out because, you know, money, obviously. And I I wandered the wide world uh, for a number of years and had a, a fascinating career in journalism. But when I came to the UK, I decided, you know, finally I was working for The Guardian. Um, at that time, you know, I was enjoying it immensely. But um, as I say, I'd never wanted to be anything but an academic. So I decided to go back to university. I was going to apply to finish a bachelor's degree, but um, I came across someone who taught at Oxford who said, no, 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 just apply for the MA um, and I'll write you a reference. So they let me in um, at Royal Holloway to the MA without having a a bachelor's degree, jolly kind of them. And From there, the the MA was in Crusader Studies, of all things. It's the only program in the UK, and indeed, I think in Western Europe, that's specifically about the Crusades. And that is when I started reading a good deal of medieval theology. So if you're thinking about the Crusades, the place that you start is with St. Augustine and his theory about just war, and you have a number of... Ways that the the theology of just war, but also things like the the theology of indulgences, you know, mushrooms from there, especially after, for example, the the Second Crusade. So I started, you know, I was a Dawkins style atheist um when when I first uh, went to to university uh, for this MA Crusader studies, uh, and through reading medieval theology, uh, somehow I came out a Christian.
0: Wow. So it begs the question, how did that happen?
1: Well, the interesting thing, or one of the interesting things about religion in the US is that it's a very particular type of religion. So my grandfather um, took me religiously um, every Sunday to a Presbyterian church Mm -hmm. when I was a kid, so from age naught to age 11. And I was only ever, you know, exposed to the Sunday school. And I thought it was rather sort of silly things for babies. Yeah. I didn't think that there was any kind of intellectual background to Christianity whatsoever. It was all sort of, you know, rainbows and puppies and guitars and, you know, kumbaya. <laughs> there's no nothing. There's no sort of base to it. Yeah. yeah. And so when I encountered medieval theology, I thought, no. These people, especially, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas, for example, are 10 times as intelligent as I ever have a hope of being. These are world-spanning geniuses, mm. and they're talking very seriously about something that I had never, because I was, as a child, given nothing to think with about Christianity, I had never understood that the, the sort of facile questions that the new atheists were throwing out, as though the questions themselves were proof that Christianity was false. Yeah, yeah. Those questions have been answered, or at least they have been thought about and written about and argued about in a intellectually rigorous and deeply interesting way for 2,000 years by people who are much smarter than I am. So having found that intellectual basis for Christianity, that was what I needed, you know, in in order to give my assent, as it were.
0: Yeah. You mentioned The Guardian, and people will know The Guardian is traditionally sort of left-wing politics, but also very well-renowned for expert journalism, for digging deep into stories and putting them out there into the world to see... So consequently, if you're a journalist, I can understand that, you know, you would want to use that kind of ideology to find out the truth about Christianity. So mentioning these names in the past, Thomas Aquinas and people like that you were getting into, Mm -hmm. what did you notice that was relevant to them about the theology now, comparing to the theology that we know today?
1: That's an interesting question. I mean, most of the questions that we have, you know, things like, why are we here? What is mm. the fundamental purpose of our lives? These questions, they're perennial. They don't go away. I think if you look around in the culture, it's fairly obvious that the sort of, you know, modern kind of, I hesitate to use this term, sort of neoliberal, as it were, individualist, post-enlightenment, you know, post-religion, that, that sort of culture has not come up with any kind of satisfactory answers to those very basic and fundamental questions. If you then consider somebody like Aquinas, he is not interested in piling up knowledge for the sake of knowledge.
0: What century are you talking about?
1: Uh, this is the 13th century, early okay. 13th century. So he's not interested in, in piling up knowledge for the sake of knowledge. He says, look. You know, when we consider questions in theology, when we consider, you know, the big questions of life, why are we here? What is the purpose of my life? But also these sort of esoteric questions, which have become a byword for silliness, like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, which is actually a very interesting and relevant and worthwhile question to ask, by the way.
0: Okay, I remember that.
1: Yes, but whenever we ask those questions, what we're trying to do is not pile up knowledge for knowledge's sake, but we're trying to obtain knowledge to increase our love of God. And the more we know about the natural world, about the, the people, the places, the things around us, we see the facets of God in all of that. And so there is a reason for you know, living through these experiences that we have, even if they're, you know, negative. There's a reason for investigating the natural world, for doing science. And this is all not in the service of a kind of toxic, atomistic individualism. It's in the service of fundamentally of community, of love, of understanding God. Yeah, yeah. And that, I thought, that was a sort of really powerful draw that united or that that sort of i suppose that that threw into focus why i was for example so why i am so interested in in history in people in understanding you know how people think and and why they do what they do and that's not just so that i can know for myself and and hoard up the knowledge but because you get sort of closer to a Knowledge, understanding, you know, love of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All roads lead back to God.
0: When I became a Christian, reluctant as I keep saying on these programs, one of the first books I read was by a learned lawyer called Josh McDowell from America. And he was lawyering with intent uh, at university. And he would ask all his lawyer-type questions to his Christian friends because he was an out atheist mm-hmm. and consequently wrote a book called uh, The Evidence Demands a Verdict. And through that, he then became a Christian. Mm-hmm. So, with your hat on, from your history point of view and everything else, going back in time to read what Thomas Aquinas and others have said, how many times did you actually doubt it? Saying, "Yeah, but this bloke maybe never existed," or how do we know that what he said is actually true? For what he said, so what did you do?
1: Yes, I mean, there's there's a sort of perennial d- debate about the historical Jesus, and there's there's quite a lot of people who say, "Well, you know, we we don't have concrete proof, but you don't have concrete proof." for just about any historical event. I mean, we don't have concrete proof that the Battle of Waterloo happened. You know, we have, for example, 21 different sort of eyewitness accounts or, you know, either eyewitness or contemporary accounts of the Battle of Waterloo. If you put them all together, they cannot all have happened precisely as the writers say they did. But yet, we have many different accounts of the battle. We can go to the place where the battle is supposed to have Mm. happened, and we can sort of dig up stuff and see, okay, well, there seem to be a lot of sort of French things from 1815 here. And on the balance of probabilities, the Battle of Waterloo happened. And the exact same is true with Jesus. We have a number of different accounts On the balance of probabilities, Jesus happened. Radical skepticism, it's a sort of enlightenment hangover, I would say. And and we've gotten quite divorced, I think, from the original reasons for why skepticism was so compelling to people, um, why it was useful to the extent that it was useful in the 18th century. So we apply, or some people when they're writing, apply a philosophical framework that I'm going to be harsh here and say that they probably don't understand to evidence that they probably don't understand either. And they come up with what they were hoping to find yes. to begin with, but that's not the, the historical method frankly
0: so in your research then going back to the 1200s 1300s before we get into your uh, one of your hot topics and that's the the crusades if you and i wrote down what we think was a a proper definition of being a christian is hopefully we'd be (laughs) on singing the same proverbial hymn sheet what was the Hmm. definition of a christian though back in the 1300s
1: gosh i think it's just as complicated it was just as complicated then as it is now I mean, this is uh, post-Great Schism, so there's, you know, an Eastern Church and a Western yeah. Church. Um, but even within the, the Eastern Churches and, and Western Churches, there is a sort of hot debate on various sorts of, of aspects of belief. You know, the, the people, they would have called themselves, you know, all of these people would have called themselves good Christians um any of the the sects that we now sort of brand as heretical like the Lollards yeah, for example yeah. to the extent that they existed would have called themselves good Christians and indeed better Christians than the establishment so to say well what is a Christian I hate to have to punt but I think that you could sort of point towards it's not no neither is it a centerless target so there are things that you know, all christians have in common you know believing in the life death resurrection of jesus christ i hope that we can hold that all in common i,
0: I would like to think so I yes <laughs> think that
1: but you know there are theological debates actually about what kind of resurrection it is is it a bodily resurrection or is it a spiritual resurrection yeah, yeah. now the bible tries to tell us precisely what type of resurrection this is by having jesus eat after his, his resurrection, it's trying to tell us, hello, this is a real proper corporeal bodily resurrection. Yeah, yeah. But there are plenty of people in the, the Middle Ages who would say, no, 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 it was it was spiritual uh, in, in nature only. There are plenty of people in the Middle Ages who would say, you know, Jesus did not have two natures, either he was only man, or he was only God, but he was not both God and man. So, as I say, very difficult to have, you know, one proper, unchanging definition that holds true for Christians across all of even just the 13th century, for example, but... It doesn't mean that Christianity is a centralist target. It's important to keep remembering that.
0: Yeah, yeah. And the fact that if Thomas Aquinas got into a time machine that he had invented, gone back and picked him up and brought him up to date, mm-hmm. he'd most probably be rolling his eyes about having picked up a Christian newspaper or magazine or, oh, you're still having those debates, are you?
1: Uh, quite. Absolutely. You know, Thomas was the the most sort of popular, well-respected theologian up till sort of the the end of the the 19th century he kind of got eclipsed really? in the early 20th century and he's since been brought back the dominican order uh is is going great guns and and doing great work with that but this sort of you know this this tomist continuism um is is you know fighting against all of these sort of you know early to, to mid 20th century theologians that you know you just sort of think Thomas answered that, and he answered it better than you, and he answered it better than you 800 years ago. Yeah. So what you doing?
0: So for those that never heard of Thomas Aquinas or have heard the name but don't know who he is, quickly fly the flag of Thomas Aquinas. Who was he, please?
1: Sure. So he was a uh, Dominican monk from originally from Italy. Aquino is in Italy. Um, he defied his family who wanted him to be uh, a Benedictine, and he went to go and join What was then the brand new Dominican order in Paris. He wrote a number of works of theology, the most famous of which is probably the Summa Theologiae, which is literally just everything that is known about theology. Now he wrote this essentially to be an introduction (laughs) for religious types, so it's written in a kind of question and answer format. There are three, well four, um major divisions of it. So talking about things like you know the nature of God or the nature of Christ, but also talking about things like the sacraments and how we come to know God. i I do sort of recommend maybe not the Summa theologia. It runs to about sort of ten thousand pages or whatnot. Really? It has a much <laughs> much shorter version um called the the compendium which has been published in a translation of sort of 200 or 250 pages or something like that. Wow. So if you want to get into Thomas, that's probably your, your best way in.
0: If I wanted to do it properly and research properly, what was his original language? He wrote it all in Latin. Ah, oh, brilliant.
1: Yeah.
0: My first year at school and learning Latin, that's really going to come in handy. There we go. Massa, massive mat and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> so I can remember. Yeah.
1: He writes in a very beautiful, very precise latin you can look up um his original autograph manuscripts he had the worst handwriting of anyone in history it is oh, really incomprehensible so i'm glad that's other people have you know put wow. these things together in books so that i don't have to because my goodness it's a scrawl
0: but that's interesting the original manuscripts are still mm-hmm. evident today yeah. wow of course, there'd be some people saying, well, we don't really know that it's Thomas's. Do we really know that's his signature and all that sort of stuff?
1: It's going back to that, uh you know, Enlightenment-style radical scepticism. Actually, can I just say? Yes. Besides the Dark Ages, there is no time period of history that is more of a misnomer than the quote-unquote Enlightenment. That's precisely what it did not do.
0: Well, let's talk about that then. What is... The Enlightenment, then, that's a term that's bandy around. So, what is the Enlightenment?
1: Yeah, so this is a sort of very late seventeenth to you know mid and to late eighteenth century movement. You know, it it starts originally in France. So you have sort of people like Diderot, Pascal, people who you've sort of probably heard of but definitely never read. Yeah, yeah. And they have a number of preoccupations. Um, the first is sort of by replacing the Christian faith with with something that they call reason. This movement, it's at first a philosophical movement, um but then sort of goes into the to the arts, into music, into to painting. and it sort of it flourishes throughout France. There's a sort of German version of this which ends up sort of branching off into sort of thing called romanticism which is where you get wagner um in the 19th century and then in england you have people burke for example is sort of writing against edmund burke is writing against the sort of enlightenment as it as it is in england so what the enlightenment ends up doing is it was going to to overthrow um the sort of philosophical structures of late medieval uh early modern christianity what it ended up doing is sort of overthrowing basically all kinds of social and political structures um and this is where the the terror and the french revolution come out of for example they're a direct product essentially of, of the enlightenment mm. Now, some things that we, essentially, we take for granted of of our modern preoccupations. So things like individualism, things like, you know, uh, free speech, things like, you know, autonomy, individual liberty. Now, all of these things, they are sort of goods in themselves. But when taken to an extreme, and when sort of, you know, deracinated from any kind of ethical system yeah have some sorts of you know issues that that we are now seeing so if you want to read a nice kind of modern um encapsulation of some of the the issues with this roger scruton is a is a good philosopher to look up for example
0: philosophy is a whole new ball game
1: (laughs) absolutely yes we do we do not need to necessarily to go down that rabbit
0: hole if you and i then get into this time machine that i've just majorly bought online so it's bound to work and we go back Which particular time frame would you like to go back to to see exactly what was going on spiritually, Christian-wise?
1: Oh, well, this is really interesting. I mean, I might go back to, say, well, Augsburg or something in 1517. So I'd like to be there, you know, in Germany at the beginning of what we now call the Reformation. Yeah. The interesting thing about sort of people like Martin Luther, for example, they, they didn't initially intend to do what, they ended up doing they didn't sort of project the consequences of what they were doing forward in time so martin luther for example what he wants is a small r reform of the medieval catholic church he doesn't want a big r reformation like he doesn't expect that he is going to set up a brand new christian denomination the issue comes in the response of the late medieval um, early modern catholic church to small r reformers yeah like Luther. They drastically overreact. They try to sort of clamp down on the thing. And, you know, what ends up doing when you sort of overheat a pressure cooker, it ends up exploding, um, which is essentially what happens in Germany sort of soon spreads to England. So I would love to be there at the beginning of that ferment. And I would love to be a sort of a spectator at the debate between Martin Luther and Cardinal Cayetan, who was sent out by the Pope to to debate Luther. That would be fascinating.
0: Well, the fact is the word debate, because it seems that so often we lose it now in certain churches Mm -hmm. maybe, whereby you can't discuss things. The only reason I'm still a Christian now is that the previous churches back in England... You know, they, I wouldn't say took pity on me, but they go, oh, here Here it he goes again. What's Martin saying this time? But they gave me time because they could see that I wanted to discuss, I wanted to learn. That's how I've learned. So it's nice to hear that the church sent out someone to do the D word debate. Yeah. Obviously, went horribly wrong. But if we were in our time machine, how do you think you would have been treated with your Christian concept that's obviously the same as mine, what we understand Christianity to be? How would you be treated then, do you think?
1: Oh, I mean, my sort of, I guess, uh, my Christianity is. Essentially Henrician is a Christianity of Henry VIII, which is essentially medieval Catholicism with a sort of light gloss of Calvinism over the top of it. So you know
0: you make it sound like a Nickebook glory.
1: <laughs> I mean it's it's delicious and beautiful and very flamboyant. I think that I would have made a fantastic mitered abbess. You know, I would have been sort of brilliant um, as a as a medieval uh you know learned abbess. And actually, this is you know sadly our our modern political system has fallen off from the the glories of the medieval political system, because you actually had women sitting in the House of Lords, usually via proxy, but abbesses, mitred abbesses, could sit in the House of Lords really? um, until the the Reformation. So you know they say well the, the first woman was what in the nineteen twenties you know to to sit in the House of Lords, no. You know, you, you have to go back to the, the Middle Ages and you have mitred abbesses aplenty. Wow. Although they usually sent a, a male proctor, but they could and did vote in the Lords and I would have been, you know, right there.
0: Fantastic. So you would have been accepted with your faith. People would be wanting to debate with you, but you wouldn't be alone on it.
1: No, definitely not.
0: Well, assuming that you can speak German then and assuming that you can meet Martin Luther all those mm. times, this is a good link. Because in recent times, we found out that Martin Luther wasn't, uh, let's say, very nice to certain races of people.
1: No, he was not.
0: No. So that then links into the Crusades, because you know mm. we often hear now that you know, this was primarily against Islam moving all the way through into Europe. So what's your very brief Janet and John version of it, please?
1: So the Crusades, there were a number of things. So the the first crusade is supposedly called in, in 1095. And I say supposedly because the concept of a crusade didn't exist in 1095 when the first one sort of got going. There were a bunch of things that were happening in the medieval Catholic church at the time. So the first was a kind of, you know, re-evaluation of St. Augustine's theory of just war. The second was a number of reforms that the popes were trying to sort of force through um, the church. So there was a general kind of ferment in the church. And then the third is the the Byzantine Empire. So the the Christian um, empire that held most of the the sort of Near East, the Holy Land, what's now Turkey and Greece Mm -hmm. and those those types of places, was under attack by an expansionist empire next to them, the Seljuk Turks. So all of these things are happening. The Byzantine emperor sends a message to the Pope at the time saying, look, can you send help, please? Now, there is a debate about the sort of nature and extent of the type of help that the the emperor, the Byzantine emperor, was asking for. But the pope at the time, Urban II, chose to turn this into a big moment, as it were. He goes to Clermont in France, where there's a council, and he preaches a sermon. Now, there are five different accounts of what he actually Said we don't have a transcript of what particularly he wrote, but what the accounts all agree on is that Urban says this to the the assembled sort of prelates and knights. First, your Christian brothers and sisters in the East are under attack by people who are you know persecuting them, you know killing pregnant women, women putting babies on spikes, you know generally causing sort of havoc and mayhem. That's one thing. The second thing is you, especially you French barons, have been fighting each other in these local wars for years. Why don't you do something useful for once and go out and save your brothers and sisters who are in the East? And the third thing that he says, and this is sort of an innovation, because Christianity does not, um, unlike some other religions, multiple other religions, have a concept of holy war as such. But Urban says, look, because this is a, um, a defensive war, you're going out to to the aid of your brothers and sisters. If you fall in this war, it will be considered to be in itself meritorious. This is a brand new thing that, that Urban is, is saying, that war as such is meritorious for this purpose instead of being merely allowable, which is what St. Augustine would say. And that doesn't sound like a big difference in principle, but actually it is. It's a huge difference, both in principle and in practice.
0: Yeah. Well, what does he mean by meritorious then? I've got a rough idea, but what's he actually majoring
1: on? So essentially, if you die in battle or if you die on the way to the crusade, this is a one-way ticket to heaven because in itself, it is a a useful sort of work. So we're talking about works. So this is a, a... Meritorious works. Right now we can this sort of works versus it. You know, like I don't want to get too <laughs> deep into that. We just left <laughs> Martin Luther. So the first crusade happens. First, there's God help us, the people's crusade. So this is while the the knights, the noblemen, are taking time to put together a proper campaign, and they're getting arms, and they're getting food, and they're going to do this right. There is a rabble of peasants that is sort of stirred up by a friar called Peter Bartholomew. And somewhere between, now, the medieval sources say something like 100,000, probably a more real estimate, somewhere between fifty 000 and 75,000 peasants walk across Europe. Wow. They walk from France to Istanbul to go on this crusade. And speaking of the people to whom Martin Luther was definitely not friendly, on their way through Germany, they massacre and slaughter uh, a number of Jews on the way. They're called the Rhineland Massacres. So the People's Crusade turns up at Constantinople. The emperor thought, okay, whatever help I ask for, this is not the help that I asked for. So the, the People's Crusade says, well, you know, ferry us across the Bosporus and we'll go against the Turks. The emperor says, but you don't have any arms and you don't know how to fight and the Turks are rather dangerous, um, so I would recommend that you wait for the knights that are coming from Europe and they will protect you. And the peasant said, no, we have the whole armor of God, we're going to go against the Turks. And they go against the Turks and they get slaughtered, all except Peter Bartholomew, who had absented himself to go quote unquote gather supplies in constantinople when he saw sort of how this was going more reasonably there are a number of knights again somewhere between sort of 30 and 50000 proper trained actual soldiers from western europe rock up to constantinople now they make or do not make a number of agreements with the Byzantine emperor saying, you know, we're here to help you out. We'll return the land to you. We promise we will. They go and they fight the Turks. And after a number of things, which I will not, you know, elaborate, yeah, yeah. you can go look this up, Um, they succeed in in taking Jerusalem. Of course, they don't give the land back to the, the Byzantine emperor, but they set up a number of sort of what are called... The Crusader states, it's a misnomer because, of course, after the first generation, they're not Crusaders anymore. They're people who were born in the Holy Land and are ruling as kingdoms. The last of these ends up falling in 1291. But the Crusades themselves go on um, into the 17th century, which is a whole other podcast. But, I mean, there is no more important phenomenon to understand. If you want to understand the Middle Ages, you have to know something about the Crusades because it was the most important cultural, religious, social, political phenomenon of the millennium, essentially.
0: So how much of it was it fighting Islam or just fighting the Turks who just happened to be Muslim?
1: I would say, now this is debated, I should say, that, and this is obviously, for a number of very good reasons, a highly charged question. we tend to read back our modern understandings of religion and especially of religious extremism onto a time period for which those sort of assumptions that we now have they don't really hold so When you read the accounts, or when you read the propaganda that sort of recruited people to the Crusades, the propaganda does not say, come fight Muslims because they're Muslim. That's not what it says. It says, come out and help your brothers and sisters and protect them against these sort of aggressive people that are committing war crimes, that are committing atrocities, that are committing you know, what we would now sort of call a genocide. Yeah, yeah. So you have to sort of understand. Now, understanding doesn't mean condoning, but you have to understand yeah. that what the people going on crusade thought was that they were undertaking a meritorious act in the service of Christ for the protection of their co-religionists. Now, some also had the idea, okay, I'm going to get money or I'm going to get land or I'm going to get whatever because yeah. nobody's motives are pure. We're fallen humanity. So, you know, there it is. But for the, the most part, you know, it was not uh, We we hate, you know, Muslims or we hate whatever and therefore.
0: Yeah, just to clarify that, it wasn't that.
1: It was not that. Now, there were also, you know, and most people don't realize this, the Crusades were not just in the Middle East. They were not just against Muslims. There were Crusades against other Christians. Really? Yes, indeed. And there were Crusades against sort of um, pagan people or people who, um, who worshipped various sorts of local deities in the Baltic and Lithuania. And there were you know, other sorts of Crusades against people who were branded heretics, like the Albigensian Crusade in Languedoc, for example. So this is a, a, a worldwide phenomenon. You know, Columbus thought that he was going to go on crusade when he sailed the ocean blue.
0: This is fascinating. And as you say, we might have to make a series of podcasts on this. Back in my time machine with you, mm. right, we go back to the first crusade. Yeah. We speak to these peasants.
1: Yeah.
0: How do you think we would have been taken by them, assuming they could speak perfect English, or maybe you could speak French fluently or whatever, yeah. but whatever language... How seriously would they take us without what we believe to be our faith compared to what they were thinking?
1: It's really interesting. So you have to sort of think what the average understanding of the the finer points of theology would have been, you know, of a sort of unlettered peasant in the Middle Ages. But then again, you sort of think, but what's the average level of understanding of theology of a Christian in the pews now? I don't think yeah. we're materially worse than than they were, or that they were materially worse than we are. It's hard to say. So, if you had talked to um, some of the people from Languedoc, where the the Cathar heresy, so to speak, um, later arises, they were not necessarily very good Christians, but they were very good Platonists um, in sort of thinking. You know, well, this world is evil, and you know, there's a, a fight between the the good God and the bad God, um, and the bad God made the earth. And so, you know, we're sort of souls trapped in these bodies, etc. They called themselves Christians, but of course the medieval church didn't think they were, and I don't think that we would necessarily think that they were now either. And so when you say, well, how would we be taken with our sort of understanding of theology? It depends when and where the time machine stopped. If it had stopped in sort of 1095 Languedoc, we might be okay. We'd be another sort of, you know, a bit of flotsam in the the religious ferment that was going on. Mm -hmm. If you'd landed in sort of other places, we might not fare so well. Really? Yeah.
0: So if we took Billy Graham with us, then probably one of the most famous evangelists from the 20th century, he might not get away with it.
1: Probably not, I I shouldn't think.
0: Interesting. One final question on the the Crusades, because it is a, a fascinating subject in so many ways. One little piece of maybe not so useless information that I gleaned reading up on it years and years ago, and it concerns St. Francis of Assisi, Mm -hmm. or as Francis of Assisi was known in those days, I would have said. Am I right in saying, and if so, what proof is there that he actually wanted to bring peace? And he went to speak to a sultan, I think, from Egypt or something like that. How true is that?
1: Uh, it is absolutely true. And this was, I think, don't quote me, I think it was 1221. The sultan that he goes to, to speak with is a guy called Al-Adil. Right. So Jerusalem was in Latin Christian control, but it had been lost in 1187. So by the time St. Francis comes around, Jerusalem had been out of Christian control for sort of about 30 years. There were a number of crusades that went on to try to get it back. Um, The crusade that was sort of then going on um, was between the Holy Roman Emperor um, Frederick II and the Mamluk uh, Sultanate, which is ruling Egypt. So Saint Francis, knowing that this crusade was going on, goes to Al-Adil and says, look, you are a great ruler. You are a wise and learned person, and we can stop this today. We can stop the war today. If you'll convert to Christianity, and Aladil says, "You want me?" You know, I think he's probably, you know, quite amused by this this friar sort of turning up and saying, mm. "Look, we we want peace. Why don't you convert to Christianity?" Aladil is saying, "We're winning. So why would I do that?" Yeah, yeah, But it is one of the, you know, there are several contemporary sources that that attest to this, so it definitely happened. But I would have been very interested to sit down with St. Francis and sort of think, okay, what is going through your mind that you think that the Sultan is going to convert to Christianity? It's you know, it's very meritorious trying yeah. to to go out and make peace, but the the peace is not on terms that Aladile would take. And you sort of think, I mean, there's a certain amount of sort of chauvinism. <laughs> to to go out you know even with the with the great and very gentle and beautiful saint francis but there is a certain amount of chauvinism to go out to the the muslim sultan and say well just convert to christianity like that's your problem
0: but the fact he went to speak and try and talk peace in the first place is better than just sitting on your backside and not talking about peace
1: absolutely so you know th- thank god for him and thank god there were you know sort of people that that would Make peace. And indeed, the, the crusade that was then sort of in preparation, the crusade of Frederick II, he actually did. Um, off the back of that crusade, they didn't fight, but Frederick brought Jerusalem back into Latin Christian control, not by fighting, but by diplomacy, actually. Oh, really? And actually was very widely criticized, even though he got Jerusalem back, he was very widely criticized for making terms with the sultan even though those terms are what caught Jerusalem back for the Christians it didn't last very long though they lost it again
0: yeah but what can we learn from this especially what's going on today
1: yeah I mean I think that it's really important to understand well not only sort of the the power of diplomacy which I I hope that more people would understand and more people certainly should understand but also the importance of understanding where your opponent your enemy your person on the other side is coming from what they want what they think what they believe what is motivating them to do what they're doing now again to understand is not necessarily to condone but if you don't understand, you're not going to be able to, to discuss, to come to terms, to get to any kind of mutually beneficial solution, whatever.
0: So diplomacy is one thing. Mm. What else have you learnt from all your studies about the Crusades and the medieval period yeah. that we can apply to today?
1: The really interesting and beautiful thing about the, the Middle Ages is, you know, we have a completely distorted view, for example, from the, the movies about what they were, what they looked like, what they they felt like, you know, these sort of filmmakers apply a sort of blue or green filter to all of the images so that everything sort of looks dull and brown and horrible. Mm. That is the opposite of what the Middle Ages were. Medieval people loved color. Everything was brightly colored, brightly painted. They loved color. they loved music. What comes out when reading? things from the the middle ages when trying to sort of inhabit or swim around in people's minds is just how joyful and fresh and new and beautiful everything seemed to them. Like they walked around in an atmosphere where everything was sort of suffused with the presence of God. And it's almost as if the world around them is sort of fizzing and, and sparkling and shining with the presence of God.
0: Right, I'm going to put my Guardian journalism hat on here Mm. and say, but how do we know that?
1: Read any of their literature. Look at any of their music. There is so much that survives from the Middle Ages, and you can, if you want to, go and inhabit this really beautiful world through reading their literature.
0: Seems as if we've missed God completely sometimes in the 21st century then, compared to what they had then. Or maybe, maybe not.
1: Yeah, I mean, God, in a way, he's sort of been, this is metaphorically speaking, but he's sort of been, you know, beaten back to the margins. You know, he's something that we pull out of a drawer, you know, for, for two hours of a Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. And in the Middle Ages, they genuinely lived as though Christianity is true. And if you live as though Christianity is true, then that means that everything relates back to God. Theology was called the queen of sciences, not because it was the best, but because it encompassed everything. Science was theology. Mathematics was theology. You know, painting and music and all of that was theology because it all, all of those, you know, those beautiful, those useful things, the ways in which you understand the universe, those all point back to God who has given you the not only the ability, but also the desire to understand those things. And by understanding those things, to understand a tiny little bit more of him.
0: Wow. Would there have been all the, the rules and regulations in the medieval time that we have in certain churches today?
1: It depends. Now, there are you know, you'll have um, bishops going around sort of doing visitations and, you know, they, they write down all the thing, the naughty things that the monks do, for example. But, you know, this this sort of sense of, you know, legalism, which I think really comes in, sorry to say, comes in in the Reformation and is made sort of even worse as time goes on. This sort of idea that, you know, this legalism, this scrupulosity, yeah, that is so often a characteristic of modern religion. It's not the same, or at least, you know, it doesn't seem to be to the same extent in, you know, medieval understandings or or of Christianity.
0: Well, oh, that's good because I'm sure even today, if somebody found out that I brew my own beer, which I do, mm-hmm. there'd be some churches yeah. wanting to decry me, oh, never listen to his podcast, again. he makes beer, you know, and this is all this sort of stuff. If we go back to medieval times and in our time machine and they found out that I make beer, how would that have gone down then?
1: Can I have some? I think that's what they would have said. (laughs) Actually, strangely enough, brewing beer was a job actually mostly for women in the Middle Ages. You had quite a lot of women who had their own um, independent businesses brewing uh, beer, and yeah.
0: Thank you for saying that. The reason I'm saying this is, from what I can gather, Martin Luther's wife... Held the license in the local village where they lived to brew beer, and so people can say therefore that brewing the beer by his wife helped his funds to help him go abroad and wherever he went.
1: Yeah, no doubt about it.
0: Wow! So, along with being an abbess, then mm. you would have been in the medieval times. You would also have had your own brewery. That's some-
1: <laughs> absolutely. I mean, wh- why not?
0: Oh, that is fantastic. Thank you. We never even got on to King Richard and Robin Hood either from the Crusades. Which
1: oh dear, yes, he's he's after the the third Crusade. Is he? Richard is is interesting. So he goes out with the the objective of recapturing Jerusalem. He he can't because the um, Saladin who was the ruler um, of Syria and Egypt at the time. Is essentially sort of too strong for him. So even if Richard recaptured Jerusalem they wouldn't have been able to, to hold it. And why, you know, spend blood recapturing something if you're not going to be able to hold it? Mm. But he gets captured by one of the, the dukes of Austria on the way back from the, the crusade. And he writes a beautiful song, which we still have. Look it up uh, online. Je ne vous And he basically, he's making a complaint. Look, I've been clapped in prison for two years by this duke supposedly I have a lot of friends. None of them is paid my ransom. And there is a sort of apocryphal legend that his sort of manservant, Blondel, was looking around Austria to find King Richard and found King Richard when he heard him singing this song out of the (laughs)
0: window. That's
1: not quite how it happened. Richard's mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine, paid his ransom and sort of got him out. So Blondel didn't have too much to do with it. Um, but the song is very real and still exists and has been widely recorded, actually. So I commend that to you.
0: Wow. With the lute guitar solo thrown in as well. sort of. Uh, indeed. 100%. <laughs> and I never knew he was held prisoner in two years by an Austrian. Well, listen, is, time is its just gone whoosh, like that. We'll have to do another podcast. But before we do, we come to the final bit, which is uh, your Christian hero. And as I say on most podcasts, you have to choose a Christian hero, someone who's dead, And uh, someone who's not in the Bible. Now, is it going to be Thomas Aquinas or is it going to be somebody else? So Charlotte Gauthier, who is your Christian hero, please?
1: C.S. Lewis. Oh. It's sort of a a cliche, I I suppose, to to choose him. But there's a particular reason. I mean, he was, as I am, a medieval scholar, although he did literature rather than history. And I think there is, is no one who has done sort of a better job at, conveying the beauty the richness the understanding of the medieval worldview than c.s lewis did everyone reads his christian apologetics books and those are great those are amazing but go and read his scholarship the discarded image is a great book he's talking about the medieval understanding of the cosmos and the way that he imbibed and could talk about medieval literature is really sort of beautiful. You can understand, you know, the the underpinnings of his own Christianity and his own sort of understanding of God by reading his scholarship more even than you can by reading his his Christian apologetics books. So if we're talking about, you know, sort of fellow medievalist who has has done something to to help promote the beautiful understanding of God that I think that too many of us have have lost. You know, C.S. Lewis is your
0: man for that. Wow. Well, that's a great answer. Of course, now I live in Northern Ireland. Guess who originally came from Northern Ireland? Indeed. Clive Staples Lewis, of course. And then in Belfast, yeah. there's a wonderful statue of him with the wardrobe. And on the back of the wardrobe is a, a letter he wrote to a little girl. Mm-hmm. And he was explaining who Aslan was. And for piece of information, fingers on the buzz no conferring, Aslan is the Turkish word for lion, I believe. It is. Yeah. So yes. very quickly, because we can't finish just like that on C.S. Lewis, from his writings on medieval history and theology, mm-hmm. what can we see that he's put into, say, for instance, The Lion, Witch and Wardrobe or other books?
1: Yeah, there's a scholar called Michael Ward who um, wrote a entire book and has actually made an entire career on how C.S. Lewis's understanding of the medieval cosmos maps onto the Narnia books. So the seven planets that were known to be or understood to be in the Middle Ages each have a book in the, the Narnia series that expands on the theme or the, the imagery that is associated with that planet in the medieval mind.
0: Give us a quick example.
1: I guess the best example is um, the Dawn Treader mm-hmm. is the sun. So when they sail to the, the end of the world... And what they're sort of taking up and drinking in in buckets is is liquid light, for example. Epithet, you know, the words sort of golden and light and gold and etc. They're woven in throughout the book, so you you get you know a lot of imagery that is sort of you know sun like and light like that is used in the the book throughout, and it's similar ones. Which
0: is what you're saying? How everything was bright in medieval time. And Mm -hmm. I just love what you said there as well about theology. Music was theology. Science was theology. Maths was theology. Sport most probably was theology as well. Yeah. Wow.
1: All of the above.
0: Well, you've made history and medieval history far more exciting than it was when I was at school.
1: Great. I mean, if I can spread the gospel uh, of the Middle Ages, stop watching all of those sort of you know sad and depressing movies and just dig in and read the actual stuff and see how you get on yeah. you
0: know or even horrible histories now my son loves horrible histories so that's pretty good
1: you know if that gets people into history you know amen to it
0: <laughs> where are we going to see charlotte go in the future then what's what's going to be our plans for the future
1: well let's see so i have uh, recently taken up a job with the uh, the diocese of southwark so i'm doing all kinds of sort of you know training and and other events for them so i will be doing a lot of speaking and and writing on theology And now that I'm coming to the end, I will probably by the time this podcast goes out, I will no longer be a doctoral researcher, I'll just be a doctor. So that's happening, hopefully in a couple weeks, the thesis will go in. And then there's going to be a book that's going to come off the back of that, talking about sort of crusade diplomacy, and the, the end of the Middle Ages. So you'll have to look for that in about sort of two years' time or so. So watch this space. Yeah,
0: or maybe in two years' time, have you back to promote the book.
1: That would be great.
0: Charlotte, it's been phenomenal. I really have enjoyed listening to what you've said and answering my questions on on all things medieval history and also a bit more as well. Thank you so much for your time. I wish you all the best for next year as well as just a straightforward, plain old doctor.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thanks, Charlotte. God bless.